Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is someone I've been wanting to talk to for a while. She works at one of the longest-running garment clothes companies in the UK, so you can safely say they've been around for a while. Would you like to introduce yourself, Hilary? Hi, I'm Hilary Bacon, Marketing Director at Cordings of Piccadilly. When I say Cordings have been around for a while... <laughs> so we we are quite a new brand. We've been around since 1839, um, started in the Strand in London, and John Charles Cordings um, started the company as waterproofers and outfitters, and we're pretty much still that to this day. Are you still in the same location? No, we moved in 1904 to Piccadilly, so... The, the building, Denman House, was built with Cordings as a store in its um, on its ground floor with the basement was the manufacturing unit for Cordings. So we're still in the same building now. So after 100 odd years, you can't actually, you know, exactly a sort of pop-up shop. <laughs> no, and, and what, what, is, what I absolutely adore is some of the old photographs we've got. You can still see where they were photographed and... You know, the window with the, the displays of the kind of um, men with their riding coats on. We've got this wonderful shot from the store looking out into Piccadilly. And you can still stand in the same place and see the same view. And, you know, the same outfit, mannequins in the window. It's, you know, it's just lovely. And, you know, if, if, if any of your listeners ever get a chance to come into the store, it's, it's worth seeing as a, as a just a sort of historical place of interest. It's beautiful. If we can just sort of focus on time a bit. I mean, just thinking back, 1839, mm. it's 180-odd years ago. Uh, at that time, you didn't just sort of pull up in your car outside <laughs> or take the tube to the shop. I mean, you might have come to, on foot riding in a coach. They, but people, you know, there's there's some great stories about the coachmen with their, you know, the horses um, would come past the store in their coach and the, you know, the the guys would walk out of the store and hand them their riding, you know, their, their waterproof coachman ca- coat to put on, and then they'd carry on on their way. So, you know, it, it, when, when we started, people came on, on horseback. And, um, you know, the, the, the reason um, he started the store was to, you know, to pr- provide waterproof clothing. So at that point, Macintosh had just, you know, created vulcanized vulcanization of rubber so that it made it pliable it could be coated onto cotton and that was totally innovative and a complete game changer so people were suddenly able to wear waterproof outfits on horseback so you know in, in its day it was um you know high-tech you know innovative technology of the definitely non-breathable sort in my experience well they've got holes you know <laughs> they've got holes you know they were they were they were totally innovative because at that you know before that point you got wet on horseback and then suddenly you know they were they were creating garments that kept you warm and dry. And I'm guessing that sort of also went into the early years of motor cars as well. Exactly that, exactly that. So um, we used to provide Rolls Royce with all of their motoring outfits. So they were handmade in the basement and we would provide them to there. And, you know, some of our styles today, you know, like the, like the, the Hampton, you can still see, see the, the same details like the leg straps and the big wide bottom of it where, you know, the sort of coat is built to be worn on a horse. So, you know, they, they, were, they were making clothing that was completely fit for purpose. 
It's fascinating to uh, to consider what it must have been like in those days. I mean, the, the thing that I, I get the impression they did was they'd make they'd make things and they'd stick them in the window to entice people in. But once the customer was in, they would say, "Well, what do you need it for?" And they would just, you know, they'd be making things individually by hand to the customer's requirements. So, you know, there are stories of. Um, fully waterproof pyjamas being made for a gentleman who wanted to wear them in Africa. <laughs> I was about to say they'd ask you, did the sir need anything for the weekend? Yes, <laughs> waterproof pyjamas. <laughs> waterproof pyjamas, can you imagine? <laughs> That's no. what thinking about. No. So, apart from early horseback motoring, what would you say Cording's sort of main focus has been over the years? Well, we are a we we primarily are a countrywear brand, so um, we we pr- produce clothing that primarily is sort of focused on you know like tweed and lambswool. So our, our clothing is made for for the for the countryside really. So it's sort of like you walk into the centre of Piccadilly and then you'll buy an outfit that you can then wear in the field. Um, you know, not in Piccadilly, but but we also sell you know. Traditional British suits, um, you know, all, all sorts of, you know. So, so we we have sort of four core product areas, and then from that we have lot, you know, we can basically a man can come in, we can just dress him from head to foot, apart from the shoes. And Yorkshire vets, maybe. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. Uh, anybody who wants, you know, traditional British clothing, we can we have it. So over the 180 years, you must have had some pretty well-known customers come in. Yeah. So um, we had a royal warrant we were making for George V. We've made boots for the Queen Mother, um, Mrs. Simpson, probably not on the same day. Um, you know, so we, we held, held a royal warrant for a long time. And, you know, to this day, we still see regularly see well-known faces in the store. Um, so you know, it, there was a point when we were the go-to for all the landed gentry, not just for their own clothing, but for the, for the clothing of their staff. So they would come in and buy coats for you know their their liverymen their their for, you know for their um, gamekeepers all sorts of things so what's happened to make that taper off is there less landed gentry or are they uh, all skint or well i think you know it's, it's an interesting thing when you think about the history of cordings that it started at a point when you know the, the class structure in britain was very different to how it was is today so at one point um you know we were clothing the gentry and you know after the two world wars you know the depression all those things you know society's had a massive change that has meant that we're not we're not dealing with the same um you know society's changed and so we've had to sort of you know we're now clothing everybody it's which is much nicer (laughs) does that mean you also get maybe a lot of foreign customers yes yeah we've got um being in Piccadilly, we've got an awful lot of, um, you know, you could you loosely call them tourists, but actually they're just, you know, Europeans and um, people from America who are very interested in British country clothing. So um, we also have a website and 50% of our, um, our sales on the website are going overseas. So, you know, and that, that it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, a demographic, I'd say, that is very interested in the history and the heritage and the authenticity of the clothing. So, you know, an English man will be buying 
Cording's clothing because that's what, you know, he likes lambswool jumpers, he likes a well-made tweed jacket, whereas we, we find that, especially online, we get some really interesting questions coming from guys in America who want to know what whale the cord is, who want to know the weight of the, the tweed, where the tweeds are being made. So really um, knowledgeable customers. You sort of make this sound like these are weird questions, but to no, me, they're, they're totally relevant questions. Well, it's, yeah, I, I mean, you, you've spoken about this before on your on your um, podcast that, that men, which is lovely, want to know details about things. When they're buying things, they want to know how things are made and how things are constructed and, you know, the provenance. And, you know, it, it's so lovely because sometimes we get asked questions. We have to say, well, I'll have to go find that out, you know. It's not because we're strange, we're just curious. Natural curiosity. Natural curiosity and a low-level geekness, which is I absolutely adore. Yeah. We might not be able to talk about our emotions with any sort of conviction, but uh, the whales of the corduroys. Whales of cord, you know, you know your stuff. <laughs> so you say um, a lot of this is very traditional. Are, are you using traditional British makers? Uh, where we can, we definitely do. So... Um, our lambs oil comes from Scotland, Hoyk, obviously. Um, we use all the mills that, you know, you know and love. Um, and, and ties, socks are still made in the UK. Um, some of our manufacturing has had to go abroad. And that is always because the manufacturing has stopped being there rather than us chasing, you know, profit or anything. It's just that the manufacturers have disappeared over the time. That's interesting. I mean, it depends who I'm talking to. Some people will say, oh, yeah, there's a vibrant manufacturing industry in the UK. Others will say, no, no, mate, there's nothing left. Oh, it's it's a mixture of both, isn't it? I mean, you know, I've been working in this industry since the 90s. And in the time that I've been working in it, I, I started, my first job was working for a spinner in Leicester. And at that point, you know, Leicester was a very vibrant knitwear manufacturing serving the high streets of brands and you know manufacturing has disappeared and massively in the last 30 years and i you know i personally find it a bit shameful we've allowed it to just go you know and there are manufacturers still around and and there are lots now popping up which is brilliant but you know to say it's thriving is is nonsense it's just barely ticking over I well guess. you know it's it, we need to support the British makers. Um, you know, they they need to be supported by the government, by by their local count. You know, it's like there's they they need a lot more holistic support than we in Britain give them. Why do you think they um, have disappeared? Um, I think there's lots of reasons. I think an awful lot of the high street brands in the sort of eighties and nineties took their manufacturing abroad. Um, I think. A lot of young people didn't necessarily want to go into those industries. So, you know, they're, they're not, you know, making garments is never going to be something that pays you a, a huge salary. So um, I think, it, you know, it's, it's a lot of things. And also, I would say, especially in the property boom, some of them were sitting on properties that were worth more than, you know, that were, that were just, you know, and, and it, 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 it has been a con- constant struggle because if they're not being supported by, the bigger companies, then, you know, it, it, it's difficult, difficult for them. So I think skills have disappeared. And I think, um, you know, there's been an absolute squeeze on margin for them. I guess also that, um, say, making things in Portugal or Eastern Europe, quality wise, you wouldn't maybe notice a difference. No. 
But um, I, the caveat I've got with that is if you're making, if you're buying a tweed, a British tweed, if you're buying, if you want to make a tweed and you're not using a British mill, that makes no sense to me. Um, you know, if you, you know, you look at the Northampton shoemakers or, you know, some of the leather good people like Tustings, it's like those, those are artisan crafts that you, that, that are very British and very recognizably British or silk weavers. There's lots of people I could mention. Um, if you're talking about manufacturing a pair of trousers, then, you know, the, 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 the Portuguese make them equally well as we do. Now you mentioned they're using British tweeds. Mm. Um, I was just reminded the other day when uh, when Brian Haggis, the Yorkshire businessman, <laughs> uh, really sort of quite bamboozled the Harris tweed industry, yeah, and made up uh, thousands of jackets in China using Harris tweed. Yeah, shameful. I was just thought about it because I think there's a shop here in town where they still have them. They, oh yeah, I mean, in a different life, I was. He was trying to sell them to me. I used to work for a company called Payton Cat and Carter, and he was telling me they were perfect. And why didn't you? It's like, well, no, no, just no. I mean, thankfully, you know, Harris Tweed are now thriving, and you know, we we use a lot of their their tweed. It's superb. So, you know, don't don't bamboozle people. No, because tweed is a is a strange thing because there is a lot of it around once you know where to look. Yeah, definitely. I mean. The, the the thing that I love about tweed is when you look at tweed as a cloth. If you look look at the the rovings, you know the, the individual um, fibres that are then spun and then woven. They're really bright colours, and then they're, they're they're woven together. And so you get something that looks, you know, you look at it, it looks like a green cloth. But when you start really looking at it, there's a million different colours in there. There's like bright oranges and purples. And so you know, trying to replicate that on a four pound. You know, if you say to a mill in China, replicate that, they won't be able to. It's just not possible. That was actually something of a revelation to me when I visited the Hebrides, because there was all this talk about the sort of um, organic, natural colours of the tweed. It was like the moss or like the hillsides and the rocks and all this. And then when I visited the mill and I saw their samples, their test samples from the fibre dyes, it was like, well, is this? It's the eighties have come back. <laughs> I know <laughs> exactly. the neon yellow ones, but I know. And then when you you see it like that, and you think, how do these things become that? But it's all that kind of melange and that that mixing them together. You suddenly get some like the landscape. You know, if you look at a tree in autumn, there are so many colours in that tree. But it, you know, you know, you could describe it as brown, but or mustard, but it's just lots of different colours. So it really does reflect the landscape. I think. The Harris Tweed Hebrides, you know, the Harris Tweed Authority Instagram is very good at that. Mm. They'll post a, a photo of a tweed and then do a nat- nature photo next to it, and you'll see that. Wow, yes, it's, that it's, was well selected. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's even corduroy. Corduroy, I think, if you look at a field, a recently ploughed field, it's just you know, it's like the, the lovely thing about the British cloths is that they they do they do sort of represent our our countryside. I think somehow. You mentioned that you worked with other mills making traditional cloths. Is there any you'd like to mention there? Well, Fox Brothers um, have we we've been working. So we um, we designed the first cover cover coats to be worn on horseback over a hundred years ago, and are still making exactly the same coat. And um, we worked with Fox Brothers a hundred years ago to design a cover cloth. Which um, so the word cover comes from the French word. Couvert, excuse my pronunciation, which means to hide. So 
It was the idea that you had a coat that you could ride into town on horseback, get off the horse, and you'd still look smart because, you know, the, the horse hair, the mud wouldn't show up because the cloth was a sort of dun colour that, that, you know, absorbed it. So, and they, they are now back making that cloth for us and have been for, you know, 15 years now. Now, I have reason to believe that one of your cover coats was featured in a Guy Ritchie film as well. Yes, yes, in Snatch. In Snatch. <laughs> how, how did that come about? Is there any story about it? Well, it's we, we get featured in quite a few films and the, the films with the big budgets, they'll just, an order will come through and you'll only spot it if you, you know, because I, I look at every order that comes through the business just because I'm interested to see what people are buying. And then you'll see it's going to a studio. So, um, we found out about it after the event, but um, uh, anecdotally, they had two. One was from us and one was from somebody else. And they said that the, the Cordings cover coat, which is what we would have expected after being used, filmed, you know, mauled by a, by a um, pit bull terrier, w- was still in beautiful condition, whereas the other one was a bit like a rag. <laughs> which character in the film wore the Cordings It was coat? the two, um, the, the, the one who owned the... Um, amusement arcade. I can't remember the names and his sidekick. Ah, right. Yes, Jason Statham and uh, the other guy. Yeah. yeah. So what? One of them was actually wearing accordings. Was wearing accordings, and so I watched the film the other night. Just I was thinking, yeah, yeah, you, you can see it. You can see it's ours. Any other films or sort of um, appearances you might mention? So the Kingsman. There's there's a, the first scene where um, I think it's Lancelot the agent comes in and he's wearing one of our house check suits and you know he, he has this big fight scene and it's it's quite funny because he's rolling around on the floor and his shirt tails st- stay stuck stay t- tucked in and i'm thinking well that's exactly what our shirts do they're big enough to stay tucked in so and um but unfortunately he then gets sliced in two which uh it's a really you know bad thing to happen to a house check suit yeah, and, right. um, very Sounds no good at all. <laughs> but no, we we do regularly send send clothing to one of the other James Bond films. We were in Albert Finney's character was wearing our corduroy trousers. I imagine the Crown also might. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's funny because quite often I'm watching films and I'm thinking that looks like one of ours. But you know, they don't tell us. You know, the big budget um, films don't. They'll they'll just come and buy what they want because they don't need to come and ask for you know sometimes we get approached and they'll say can, can we have you know the smaller budgets and we'll obviously you know try to help them out but um quite often we don't know about it until we see it on, see it on film when you do see it on film do you notice if it's made to look worn i was talking to someone recently who pointed out how in british films the clothing has always been aged mm. so it looks worn but in american films you often see the creases still on shirts yeah. because they've just unwrapped it and stuck it on yeah no, I, I i wouldn't i i've not really noticed that but now you've said it definitely they've obviously given them a lived in look which you know if if, they're, if it's a real person of course they'd have worn that more than once you know it's not like they're an instagram influencer or something <laughs> Pouty lips. So, talking about the British country style, am I right in thinking that that is something that it's quite static? It's uh, it's a very looky look. Oh, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, I think there are certain things that you could say. For example, um, a V-neck lambswool jumper and corduroy trousers is something that have been there, and a three-piece, a three-button SB jacket, tweed jacket. 
So I think there are certain things, but then, you know, definitely it evolves. I think um, the paddock jackets have come in in the last in the last forty years. Um, you know, fleece gilets are something that you wouldn't have seen fifty years ago. So it does evolve, definitely. Not all Range Rovers and hampers and uh... well, that's a part of it. But you know, I think that there's this misconception about about country clothing. It's like you know, things are, things are, are warm for very good reasons. You know, if you're if you're out in the in a field all day, you want to wear something that's going to be fit for purpose, and you know, you're going to look good at the end of it. I always say our clothes can be dragged through a hedge without you looking like you've been dragged through a hedge backwards. You'll come, you know, you'll come out of the out of a, a, a day in the on a, on a shoot or something, and you'll still look great. Do you often do sort of field testing of your clothes? Yeah, no, we, abso- <laughs> we absolutely do. We do backwards because through a hedge. <laughs> we do because you know you've um, you know you've got to make sure you know we we pride ourselves on things being fit for purpose because that's you know that's what we do on the tin. It's kind of really important to us. If we if we were to develop a field coat in a in the tweed that wasn't fit for purpose, we, we, you know, our customers use them for what they're meant to be used for. So we'd know about it very quickly. So the company started 1839, flourished through horseback riding and motor cars, and then through two world wars. I imagine that was also good times. You mentioned the Depression, not so good times. Good times. How has ownership of Cordings changed over time? Has it always been a family com- company? It was for a very long time. And then um, I think in the 1950s, it was sold um, to a motor car company. who, and, and then it went through quite a rocky patch for a, a number of years because they, you know, the, 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 indus- the industry, the motor car industry was going downhill and they just ignored or neglected the brand and, and then it sort of went through a few ownerships until um, in the early 2000s, the current owners were looking to sell sell the business. And we had various um, big big corporations coming to look at us. Ralph Lauren came and had a look at it and walked in and started asking questions like, where's your design department? Where's your marketing department? You know, to the four people standing, sitting in the office in Piccadilly. So, yeah, and they um, were both in the pub. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, um, uh, brilliantly, um, Noel Uloth, the our managing director, was working for the brand at the point, at the time and just thought, this is, this is mad. You know, there's nothing wrong with this brand that can't be fixed. And he asked for the then owners for a bit of time to try to put together a management buyout and, you know, played a blinder by not asking, you know, a um, big investment company for some funds. He asked somebody who was a regular customer in the store and who was a big fan of the brand if if he would help to help him buy the company. And this was someone I, well known, I think. I, <laughs> it was um, Eric Clapton, the musician, who at that point had recently discovered Cordings. He was walking past the store in Piccadilly, looked in the window and saw the furly herringbone suit, um, plucked up the courage, he said, because he was a, you know, working class country boy, plucked up the courage to go into the store and put the suit on and just thought, this is exactly what I want. It's perfect. And from that point on, he was coming into the store by his own admission pretty much every day. And 
luckily, luckily it was a point when Noel was looking for somebody and he thought, well, let's ask Eric and asked Eric for 15 minutes of his time and spent a couple of days frantically preparing a presentation of 15 minutes and three minutes into the presentation, Eric tried to interrupt him and Noel, you know, very bravely said, you know, can I please finish? And when he did, Eric said, well, I was just about to say yes, you know, I'll support you. Which strikes me as such a brilliant move. Oh, yeah. As opposed to going with some investment company, which would just really have tweaked everything for maximum return. Yeah. And not seen the heart of what really was the business. No, I mean, it was it was an absolutely inspired choice because, you know, we had suddenly somebody there who was, whose sole purpose, he said, to keep was to keep the brand going so that he could keep shopping there. And, you know, that's just an ideal partner to have because, you know, he's only been interested in us being true to who we are as a brand and supporting, you know, he's got very, um, you know, he's, he's got a very good eye for cloth. So he, he has opinions on the tweeds that we, we use. And he, um, you know, um, thought it was a good idea to reintroduce ladies wear because his wife was looking for country clothing and couldn't find anything she liked. So, you know, we, we then reintroduced our ladies wear collection. So, was, so you could say he's a pretty hands-on investor. Yes, he he's but in a, in the right way, you know, he's not, you know, we don't have, you know, we're not having to sort of produce massive dividends or, you know, it, it's all just about making sure we we keep going and keep doing what we're doing as as well as we can do. So it's a, and, perfect. And yet you don't have an Eric coat or No. 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 No, no I regularly get can I have an interview with Eric? It's like no, <laughs> that's you know he. It, it's very much a he's very much behind the scenes, but very supportive. What are his favourite uh, well, pieces? He, he just to go down that celebrity angle. <laughs> I would say the furley. I mean, that's the, that that was the thing that brought him into the store in the first place—the furley herringbone suit. And you know, you look at it today; it's been around in the collection for probably 25 years and it still looks great you know i was looking at it the other day in the store thinking well you can't really get a better you know it's a herringbone so it's lovely and very wearable and it's got those lovely melange colors we were talking about and you know you can put it with everything so yeah that was what brought him in that's a, that's a cracking story um it strikes me when you say that that this has been around. This suit has been around for twenty five years. I mean, clearly that Quite is new. completely completely outside of fashion. There's no yeah. sort of you haven't been tweaking it, no. labels in and out, or it is what it is. Yeah, I always think that a, a guy who bought from Cordings a hundred years ago would come into the same store with the same, pretty much the same layer. Although the basement's not manufacturing now; it's it's retail. Or, you know, the menswear's downstairs. You know, they'd come in and they'd recognise the product. You know the you know the Macintoshes are still there, the cover coat's still there, the tweed jackets. You know, it's. it's I mean, I'm sure that um, I'm sure there has been small adjustments. So, you know, certainly, I'd say the weight of the cloths have come down in the last hundred years because we, you don't need twenty eight ounce tweed now. Um, Some of us would have disagreed oh, I, I, with you. <laughs> the, Nor- the Norwegian <laughs> contingent. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, generally, the well, nerds. you need twenty-one ounce. You definitely, we've got you know, we've still got lots of twenty-one ounce in the collection. But um, yeah, so I think you know, but we, we've never been about fashion. It's just it's about style, and actually, it's about clothing, really. 
So um, sometimes tweed comes into fashion and then sometimes people will ask us our opinions on things. It's like, but we don't, we don't, we're not ever attempting to be fashionable or, you know, the brand of the moment because it's just would never, it would never work for us. We would absolutely fall on our faces if we tried to go down that route. I just, I think you need to be a totally different mindset if yeah, you're going exactly. to be following that. Yeah. It's, then it's always change. It's not about making the best stuff you can have made and selling it. It's just you're constantly running. You're constantly running and you're, it's that whole churn of fashion, which is just something that makes no sense to to me as a, you know, not just according to the brand, we're not into churn. You know, we get, we regularly get guys coming in with their grandfather's cover coats on or their father's jackets. And, you know, that, that to us is, ex- you know, that's exactly what we want to see. You know, something that's got that level of longevity is what we want to be making. You know, so we would hate somebody to wear our jacket for one season and then bin it. That would be, um, you know, sacrilege. I do find it incredibly comforting that clothing styles and well, covert jackets from say 150 years ago are actually still mm. still popular and used and usable and all these old fabrics are still almost the same as they always were yeah it's it's it's, it's really lovely i mean i was having a conversation with justin the the buyer and he had this piece of cloth and it was like this really interesting hop sack linen, very heavy. And he was thinking about, you know, and I said, well, what's so interesting about that? He said, well, it's a really old cloth and no one's using it at the moment. I think, you know, it's just, it's just perfect. And I thought it's so nice that whole thing of not thinking what's the new, what's the new trend. It's just, this is an interesting cloth. It's still being woven. You know, it, it would be perfect in our collection. I think, you know, what, what I love about the way we develop new, new product is we look at our archives. We, um, you know, we look at our collection and say, what, what is a natural progression from where we are now? So, you know, we've got the cover coat. So the folly foot, the, the Donegal folly foot makes a great addition to that range. You know, we've got this. What else will sit next to that? So, you know, it's that lovely thing of building a jigsaw together rather than everything goes out one season and it's a new collection. It's just, you know, these are our little core ranges, the, the moleskin trouser, the corduroy trouser, the lambswool v-necks. You know, what else sits inside that collection that, that adds something different, is fit for purpose, has got the details that, you know, that people need and is you know, wearable and durable? It's, it's a nice way to, to build ranges, I think. But you don't make uh, footwear any longer. No. we So when, when we stopped making the boots... Um, we, we 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 stock um, Le Chameau, but we don't make footwear because, you know, honestly speaking, when people come in and ask us, we just send them down to Lokes because, you know, it's it's a different ball game that. And you know, if you're going to do it properly, you need, you know, you need depth of stock, you need styles, and you know, there are people doing that very well. So we just point them in the right direction on that one. If we can get down and nerdy for a minute or two. Uh, we have mentioned the Harris Tweed. Mm. We've mentioned the Fox Brothers covert cloth. Uh, you mentioned the Folly Foot, which I know is made in Donegal Tweed, at least. Maybe. I mean, clearly, you know what's going on in the market for fabulous fabrics. Mm. You mentioned the linen hop sack. Um, what other stuff is going on in the UK on, on fabrics like that? I think, you know, the, the mills that, that have been making 
cloth are still making the really good cloth. So I think what's what's lovely is um, I think menswear are slightly veering back now to to looking at the provenance of where th- what where things are made and how they're made. So what what I think is really lovely for the British mills and makers is that people are actually looking through their archives a lot more and wanting to replicate things that the way that they used to be made. So in terms of what's happening in term from our perspective, you know, we're we're always delving into um you know, recently we've been looking at heavier cavalry twills for the trousers. Um flannel trousers are always something that we um look at. You know, but but equally things like um our moleskin ranges and our corduroy they're they're almost like things that are, are so timeless we don't try to change them. It's 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 more just mining the British traditional cloths that we are now doing doing as much as we can. So, and I say British, and I also mean Irish as well, because the Donegal is obviously being woven by McGee. And um, so, you know, we're, we're constantly searching for those traditional cloths and the traditional makers to, to supplement what we're doing. And, and And what's lovely is that I think... There's, there's been a resurgence, especially in menswear, of, of men being really interested in that kind of provenance. So, you know, we've now, I say in the, you know, in the last 30 years, men's, you know, menswear sort of took a real dip and it became slightly more of a European look. And I think now that guys are sort of getting back to looking at our own British cloths and saying, you know, we've got some fantastic things here. So, you know, it, it's really lovely for us as a brand to be able to say, you know, this is a West of England flannel. This is, you know, this is a, um, uh, these, your, you know, the, the Lancastrian corduroys and that is, you know, it's, it's nice because we, I feel like we're talking to people who are actually more and more as time goes on, they're, they're getting more and more interested in that side of things. So, you know, I, I, I personally find that really, really rewarding because, you know, I, I did, um, I did my degree in textile design, um, in the 80s and it was at a point when the industry the mills were just closing one after the other and you know a lot of the guys who were teaching us um had come out of the mills and they were very much of the kind of a you know you designers you don't know what you're talking about um and and now the mills that are left are, are doing really well and and you know i just I've, i personally find that so lovely that people are more and more interested in how things are being made and where they're being made and who's making them, you know. Well, clearly the, clearly the Harris Tweed story is a is a massively good example yeah, of exactly. that. I think how it the, almost disappeared, yeah. and then through really quite chance, it, it had a stage to come back. But you know, the thing about Harris Tweed that I think you know, a it's brilliant cloth, but they're very good at what they do and they deliver. You know, they're just. I think that's the thing with. You know, it can't be a kind of um, sympathy vote. You can't be working with makers and mills that don't deliver on time. You know, well, do you know what I mean? It's got to be, it's a two-way street. And I think Harris are very, very good at what they do. And they're very professional. So, you know, we, we absolutely adore working with them. And and the lovely thing is people, you know, people look for Harris Tweed and, and Shetland and, you know, they'll look for specific cloths because they know the provenance and they want they want a jacket made of that. I think, you know, hats off to, to them. It is quite strange, though, and this is my own personal opinion, because clearly Harris Tweed isn't the most technologically advanced no, exactly. fabric around. Yeah. It's basically the same as they were doing yeah. uh, when cording started, yeah. <laughs> say, 150 years yeah. ago, on pretty much the same loom. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is there. It's- but say an Italian mill mm. 
will be making super high tech. This is we've improved it so much since last year. Yeah, yada yada. I mean, it's it's different. They're different types of cloth, aren't they? I mean, the Biella mills were always about producing those very fine, you know, worsted cloth. So, you know, I and you know, we do produce worsted cloth in the UK, but I think Harris Tweed. It's like it. It's just very recognisable, and it doesn't need to change what it what it does. You know, and if you, what I find interesting about Tweed, especially, is if you look in a in a fast fashion chain, and they've got something that's you know in Tweed. You look at it; it's like it's patently nothing like it. You know, it's it's a plasticized version of it. So, you know, they don't need to change what they're doing, and they don't really need to get any more technologically advanced, in my opinion. It's uh, strange the power the Harris Tweed label actually mm. holds, and it does have a, a very comforting look. Yes, even though you yeah. might not know the full story behind yeah. it. Yeah, and the fact that you know there are people actually hand weaving this stuff is brilliant. You know. I think the only way they could improve the story was actually having the, the weaver sign each label yeah. so you could trace that it right back. That would be lovely. Well, they, I think that's probably worth asking them because that, that would be totally doable. I think for the custom orders that might actually mm. be possible. I do um, have one of my favourite weaver friends actually on the Isle of Harris. But most of the cloth isn't actually woven on the Isle of Harris. It's on woven on Lewis, but um, they decided to call it Harris Tweed. <laughs> <laughs> but I have Tweed from her, and that's woven in her shed where I have visited. It's and it's like, wow. Yeah, that's that's just that kind of artisan skill that you know. We we get sometimes I get more I get frustrated that we sometimes have more care about why, where we're buying our bread than our t-shirts. It's like you know that. Being able to trace something back to somebody, I think, is lovely. Do you think that makes us care more about it? I I think so, definitely. I think if you're buying something that you know has been made by a skilled person who has taken pride in what they're doing, then definitely. I think it's, you know, I mean, one of the things I've always found interesting is that we, the reason we know a lot about medieval and Stuart and Tudor textiles is because textiles used to be very valuable and they used to be part of somebody's will, so their estate. The, the, the textiles were important in those days and the concept of those guys of throwing things away in the bin after one use would just make no sense. So, you know, I think getting back to the, that those values would be really great, I think, because, you know, textiles used to be very, very, you know, important commodities. And and you know where I live in the Cotswolds, were all the great towns were built on, on the woolen industry. So uh, we were discussing this in the in the Christmas special edition about how um, the the Yorkshire Vet Program, all oh, creatures yeah. great and small, how these uh, chaps, the vets, are so immaculately well dressed, and they keep changing their tweed suits. Yeah. All the time. I mean, they've obviously got huge wardrobes, but <laughs> well, that wouldn't have been the reality. This, this was just before the Second World War, yeah. I think it's set nineteen thirty nine. No, it wouldn't. Have, they wouldn't have had that much. No, they'd have had one or two tweed jackets. You know, they've had a, an overcoat. They'd have had probably a lot, lot of shirts. But I imagine TV series like this and The Crown. It must be wonderful marketing for those brands who are in that segment. Sort of, I think so. I mean, I think the lovely thing about the lovely thing about our customers is they come to us because they 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 have a level of 
knowledge. And I don't, that sounds like a weird thing to say, but they know who we are. So they're coming into the store because they want to buy something that has got, you know, real value to it, I think. And they are really knowledgeable. They come in and they've, you know, they've been buying from Cordings for a number of years and their father bought from Cordings or they're, you know, and that, that's just lovely because you're, it's almost like you've got that relationship with the customer that a lot of retailers aren't lucky enough to have. They, you know, they come to us because they understand the clothing. That sounds to me very much like, um, there's been, I mean, there's talk about sustainability all the time now and there's this thing about buying better, buying less, uh, which to me translates to if you buy something, at least use it up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Which is completely outside the, the fashion thing because most of the time you won't manage to use something up that quick. Yeah, like, well, I don't know. It's funny. It's a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, I think we don't need as many clothes, you know, we don't need to be sold clothes in the way that we are. You know, you shouldn't have wardrobes upon wardrobes full of things. It just makes no sense. So I think, you know, clothing should be worn. It shouldn't be worn once and thrown away that just it's nonsense and, and i think again with our customers if we we don't we're sort of we would be preaching to the converted if we started trying to talk those things to them because they would be non nonplussed by those sorts of ideas that you just wear something once <laughs> i always find it very comforting when i see a brand that um, keeps making the same trousers say so exactly year in year out so you might need to go up a size now and again. Yeah, exactly. Because, because your trousers have shrunk. <laughs> That's it. I mean, they keep That's making them smaller and smaller. Pesky. <laughs> so uh, but at least having that faith in what you're doing, that you don't need to keep changing things willy-nilly just because things have to change. Yeah, that, you know, it's, it's, it, it's great, actually, because I think especially now, now, you know, people are talking about sustainability and all, all those which are buzzwords, you know, they're absolute buzzwords for a lot of the industry. But, you know, it's like, if you get it right, you don't, you know, you do need to tweak things, but you get it right, you don't need to change it. And, you know, that's, that's I mean, things like our plus twos and um, plus fours are incredibly practical garments. So once, you know, if, if, a, if a gentleman's got a pair, then they totally get why they're so practical and they will replace them when they have worn out. And that's, or, you know, when they've, so I think get, get it right and then you don't need to keep reinventing the wheel. When you say they replace them when they're worn out, I mean, is this the, the grandson coming in to <laughs> yeah, replace his much. grandfather's? <laughs> pretty much. We do we do get that. And we get um, the other thing we get, which is quite interesting, is somebody will say, I bought these and I've got a hole, you know, and it'll be the 21 ounce or the furly or something. And we'll be able to provide them a bit of fabric to patch it up. You know, it won't be exactly the same color because they'll have been through a hedge 15 times, but... You know, we're still running the same cloths as well, which I think does give something longevity. So if somebody comes in and buys, you know, a house tweed jacket one year, they can buy the trousers if they want to the next year or a waistcoat or breech. So the collections stay quite static, which in some ways, you know, you'd say, well, how does that work? But it just does for us. You know, we don't, we do have new jackets and we have new styles, but we're not constantly trying to reinvent the wheel. I think, you know, for us as a brand, having confidence in what we're producing is, it's important, really. Something I can't help noticing every time I look through your website <laughs> is how many incredibly vibrant colours there are, say, for corduroy trousers. Yeah. Who are the guys who buy these? Oh, do you know what? That's <laughs> the best thing because, um, you know, the first thing to say about that is 
they they sit beautifully with the tweed because as you know the tweed is vibrant you know as you say it's a kind of 80s when you look at it the 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 rovings are kind of all sorts of colours. So the, the if you get a kind of lilac pair of cords and put them with the jacket, they look great. So the guys who are buying it are just, you know, it's everybody. It's everybody. I remember once watching a guy coming in and he found a pair of um, lilac um, drill trousers, put them on. He said, these are these are jolly. These are brilliant like this. And I looked at him and thought, you look great. You know, it's, it was so perfect. Like that confidence to wear it. I love it. It's, it's quite strange. I, I find myself in in two minds here. On the one side, I'm I'm thinking I could never wear something like that. But why? Oh, that makes... And then I'm thinking, but I applaud peacockery. I applaud oh, people who it? go out. And... Yeah, do you know, the, the funny. I look, I look when I um get off the train at Paddington, and everyone's in black and everyone's in grey. It's like why? You know, we live in a grey climate here in the UK. Put some colour on people. <laughs> so when you do see somebody with a bright colour on, it just they look great and it they stand out and they. They look cheerful. That is such a valid point um, because I, when I, the rare times I commute, I, I see the same. It's their black shoes, their black trousers, yeah. their black overcoats, and their black bags. And like, you know, if they could have worn a hat and gloves, they'd have been black they'd as be well. Black. Just shows, you know, it's that lovely ability to be individual. And I think you know, if you, if you, you know, if, if if people come into our, our store and walk downstairs and see the menswear corduroy collection, it's every colour of the rainbow, and they all sell. And I, I just think that's testament to the kind of, you know, men like wearing colour. You know, I think that they just get sold grey. It's strange, is it, because they work in jobs where they have to look I, like funeral I agents? I honestly don't know, because, it, you know, if you go back through history, men weren't always wearing grey. You know, if you look at, you know, if you look through the sort of, the you know the tweed uh, pattern books of the mills. And if you go to, back to the fifties, forties, thirties, there were some really vibrant colours. So I've no idea why men have got so you know monochrome in their colour selection. There used to be a way to flaunt your wealth, didn't it? Because you'd yeah. wear red because that, that was, was the most expensive, expensive yeah. dye. Yeah. And I think there was some time there was a law against uh, the plebs using yeah. red because otherwise the knobs wouldn't be knobby yeah. enough. <laughs> Yeah, stick to your green. Yeah, stick to your greens, you lot. No, it's a, yeah. I just there should be more colour in menswear. Yeah, I, I think. I think your corduroy trouser rack is certainly a a, a good advert for that. And the, and the knitwear as well. You know, the, we sell you know the lambs will knitwear, and we've got some brilliant colours in there, and it just it it makes it makes you look more you know colourful in a really good way. I think. It makes even the dullest man look interesting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. I, I, I do wonder: is it is it maybe older men who like the brighter colours? Not necessarily. No, I've I've witnessed some pretty bold coloured selections on younger guys as well. I remember once watching a, a young guy coming in. He must have been a sort of twenty eight in, inch waist, and he put on a pair of our moleskins in rich red. And I just looked at him. I thought. You look really smart. You look utterly smart. And I sort of sidled up to him and said, they look great. <laughs> you must have thought I was a complete widow. I just, you know, I just thought that, you know, you suddenly stand out and you look different, but in a really nice way. So, I, you know, and I, the other thing I love about Cordings is, um, you know, we, we've got a sort of country clothing kind of 
that's our brand. But actually, I, I defy any man to come into the store and not find something they like because, you know, some of our outerwear is, you know, we've got things in there that would suit anybody, I'm, I think. That is a, is a good point because some of your outerwear is truly spectacular, um, like the hurricane coat. Yes, yeah, and that's... Which is, uh, I mean, that fits right in with the sort of uh, Dajual Parker crowd, mm. really. But I don't think they've noticed it. No, exactly. Keep my head down on these. No, we, we know, outerwear is our kind of, that's where we started. And I think, you know, it's really lovely. We, you know, we're really developing some lovely, brilliant outerwear pieces. And they're all, they've all got lots of design details that are practical, which I think is the whole thing for us. You know, nothing's there just for show. So we kind of, um, you know, the hurricane, you know, it's like the hurricane's using a really specific cloth and those, you know, those sorts of attention to detail, I think, is, is lovely. That nothing's for do sure. You ha- do you have in-house designers, or are you using the designers at the makers, or uh, so how does that work? So we, Justin, the menswear buyer, has got a long history in that area. Um, we use we rely on this, the skills and expertise of our makers a lot. We've got a lot of archive, um, so it, it's a mixture of a lot of things. So we just basically a lot of garments like the Hurricane will be built on the idea of. You know, there is a place in our collection for that garment. What's the best version of that? What's the best cloth for that? What details does it need? So it's a kind of like process of, of building something from an idea a lot of the time. But we do heavily rely on our um, manufacturers for their skills to to develop the best of things and, and the mills as well. Would you say there's still a, a vibrant manufacturing industry in the UK? No. No, not no. There isn't. Just No. I mean, you know, that went, there are some extremely good mills and makers still there and they are still very, very good at what they're doing and they, they themselves are very vibrant, but, you know, we've allowed it to go. It's, you know, I think it's quite shameful, really. My impression is that there are very few, well, I'd like to say quality makers. I mean, there are a lot of garments factories in the UK, but more of the sort of fast fashion bent. Yeah, yeah, which is... That that makes no sense to me. That that's there even in the UK. I just don't get that, you know, that how that exists. But no, there are still some very good makers and some incredibly skilled people out there. You know, it, it, even things like the hand linking a sock. Um, if you ever get a chance to see somebody hand linking a sock, watch watch them doing it because you just you know I've, I've seen it a few times. I'm thinking, how are you doing that? They've got these needles and they have to put the loop of the end of the sock onto these needles and we're talking you know some point two two hundred you know they're, they're, they're tiny tiny things and they loop them all on and then they link them together by using it like by hand basically you know and I, I spent a good 20 minutes once watching a woman doing that thinking I, I couldn't do that for you know you'd have to train me for four years it's interesting though you should mention socks because it seems to me that two of the most two of the largest um products in the uk being made now it is lambs wool sweaters mm. or wool sweaters mm. knitted goods and socks so what is it about the uk and socks <laughs> I, I don't know really i mean this you know you've got sort of around the leicester area there's a lot of sock makers and in some ways it's quite you know making a sock is not that labor intensive you know the finishing of the sock is labor intensive but making a sock it's you know it's a circular machine that whizzes them out um so they're not they're not labor intensive. And I think in the same way knitwear 
it's not as labor intensive as tailoring items are. So, um, and, and the cost, the labor cost of a garment is what racks it up in terms of the, the final cost. So I think, you know, the, the, the sock manufacturers have managed to hold on, you know, and it, and it is a case of that, you know, knitwear and sock manufacturers, manufacturers have held on to the industry. And it's quite remarkable because British knitwear also seems to be remarkably reasonably priced. Yep. Yep. I think you know, another thing that the it's it's a relatively I say relatively, it's a relatively healthy healthier industry. I mean it's been through in my time of being in the industry, it's gone through some big, you know, shrinks. But the guys that are left are very good at what they do and they you know they're still very strong, I think. I wanted to um oh no one thing about knitwear. One frustration I have. Hand knit. Yes. To me, that means someone like a granny with knitting needles who knits it. By pins, they're pins. <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. hand knitted. But you'll see most knitwear advertised as hand knit when it's obviously hand knit using a machine. No, that's not hand knitted. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a trading standards <laughs> issue. They'll say hand framed. Oh, hand framed or... is hand framed. So hand, hand framed is a thing. No, so that's. That's somebody physically going, you know, sitting on a on, sitting on a machine and hand framing it is is a thing. That's one of these knitting machines where you whisk. Yeah, so that, that's hand. Forth. Yeah, so that's a kind of um, like a dubier or something like that. So when you can buy a Scottish made lambswool sweater and it's advertised as hand knit and costs a hundred pounds, it's not that they have a massive basement full of grannies <laughs> knitting away, never seeing the light of knitting day. <laughs> No, I mean, you know, I I don't know of anyone hand knitting in the UK in any great depth. Now it did a resurgence in the eighties because of you know calf facet and all that. So there was there was a resurgence then, but but knitting with pins, as they're called, hand knitting, yeah. isn't something that the UK can do much now. I know of one small company in Brighton that was selling a sweater which was actually hand knit by I think it was one of their grandmas Perfect. and you had to special order it. Oh, I love that. But I was trying to work out roughly what her hourly wage was and it didn't supplement her pension to any great no, but extent. I think some sometimes I think you know she's watching telly, just put a, put some wool in her hand, that's great, you know, make something. I know I think um it, it it would be very difficult to make a living out of that in the UK now, but you know. But I think it's a good example of doing something for the love of it. Yeah, no, exactly. A lot of people or like to it. Or because you have restless hands. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's one thing to make a jumper for yourself. But if you're trying to commercially sell jumpers, then, you've, you know, you've got to make the same jumper again and again and again and get the size right. So that's um, it's quite a complex process, that hand knitting. It certainly is. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was marketing. Now, clearly, Cordings, as a uh, very technologically savvy, up-and-coming company, is right at the forefront of using big data and uh, influencers and (laughs) all the buzzwords (laughs) Mm. to sell their goods. Yes. No, (laughs) no, we're not. No. I mean, we we, we don't. We don't, really. I mean, we, you know, we love talking to like-minded people and, but it, you know, it's it's my remit marketing, but um, I just think we just try to do what we do quite honestly, really. You know, we, we've got a transactional website, which, you know, we work very hard to make sure that it, it is very good. Um, 
But I don't know. I think it was slightly under the radar for a lot of people, unfortunately. Probably going to get fired now I've said that. <laughs> do, do you sort of find that, or do you believe that if you make good stuff, people will come and you don't need to grow by 25% a year? Well, we are lucky, um, as we said earlier, with no, no, Uloth and Eric Clapton own the business between them, and they're not, they don't have any great. We, you know, we want the business to grow, we want it to be healthy, we would love to reach everybody out there who wants to wear our clothing, but you know, we don't have, we're not being pressurized to grow at what I would describe as an unsustainable, you know, and plus we're working with smaller mills and makers, so you know, we're, our sort of business model is what it is, and we just want to make sure that we're still here and hundred years time and doing what we do as well as we can you know so that that's the route we've taken as a as a company so no influencers then well how do you define an influencer <laughs> I mean, someone you pay to say your stuff is good oh no gosh can you imagine <laughs> i don't know yeah, we, do, we do get approached sometimes by some youngsters i mean but yeah, it just. I, the thing with our customers is that I think we're lucky; they're quite smart. So if we started doing that kind of thing, we would be called out on it straight away. It's, it strikes me that the whole influencer influencer thing is a quite a paradox because yeah. it, if it's working, it's not working. If if I say um, Cording's paid me five hundred pounds <laughs> to wear this jacket on my Instagram. Then people are going to listen to me and say, "Oh dear, ah, uh, <laughs> yeah." <laughs> are you that hard? <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's almost like I know this is going to sound really awful, but it's almost like you know where you used to see guys walking around with sandwich boards on them with golf sale. You know, like, yeah. And I know that's a really terrible analogy, but in some ways it's quite similar to me that there's the people are wearing it because they're being paid rather than because they actually believe in what they're. I don't know. I, I, I. I shouldn't say very much about it because it's not something I know much about. It doesn't strike me as a route we should be going down anyway. I don't think it's a sustainable uh, way at all. No, no, I think, I think, no, hopefully the generations coming up are hopefully savvy enough to not buy into that for very much longer. I think we're sort of both of us thinking now that that's not going to happen. I don't You've got to give the youth credit. <laughs> yeah, this is me giving them credit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> oh, maybe we should. Maybe we should get some youngster to put one of our jackets on. How many, how many times has uh, Clapton mentioned cordings in his songs? Oh, <laughs> Marketing opportunity there? Uh, yeah, no. no. Just no, Nick. No. No? <laughs> no. Sort of snazzy corduroys and Piccadilly Squash? <laughs> <laughs> I did, I, no, <laughs> just no. <laughs> now he's, um, you know, we're, we're so lucky because it's just, you know, he's very supportive of what we do and, um, you know, he does wear our stuff. He's got a lot of it, so he does wear it a lot. But I think if I suddenly started trying to photograph him, <laughs> to, you know, just it's not how we operate. Yeah, and then we've got lots of, you know, as you know, we, there are lots of people coming to the store who are very well known and, Again, it's not just not how we operate. So if you were to mention the top 10 famous people that have been in recently. Not going to, no. You're not going to do that either? No. Oh, so I know, I'm really, that's a very real boring. missed opportunity. I know it is, I'm sorry. It's just no, 
no, that's no. I mean, you know, we do sometimes. You know, it's quite funny. Sometimes in there, you go, oh, hello. But no. I mean, if if you'd been proper into marketing, you'd have had a social media digital specialist who was snapping paparazzi shots for the social media. Yeah, yeah, that would probably get us um, nowhere. No, I think it's um, you know, it's a difficult thing because you know, I, you know, I, in my remit, I often get asked about that sort of thing, and I just think it, you know, we've got to be true to ourselves as a brand, you know. And the other thing you get asked is why we're not doing more fashionable versions of things. It's like, well. Because that's not, you know, I think you've got to be, we have to be very um, mindful of who we are, you know. Do you feel a pressure to sort of um, take care of the legacy? Yeah, absolutely. I personally do very much so. And I, I know I know we, all of us in the, in the team do, you know, it's, because, you know, it's been going for a long time and um, we're still in the same building. And, you know, I do, I do feel that we've got to honour that legacy and heritage. It's important. Strikes me as quite different from a lot of other companies where really you can sort of sense that there is no legacy, really. Yeah, it's um, you know, and I think that's what I think that's that's what made. I mean, when, before I started working for Cordings, I I started off working for Mulberry. That was my sort of first job out of um, university, or in fact, Polytechnic. Um, and we used to go into Cordings to look at them because we knew they were the real deal. And, you know, over the years, I've always gone into Cordings and, you know, now I work for them. It's I, To me, it's important to really protect that and to make sure we're still doing what we, what you know, what we should be doing, you know. And I also get a bit um, frustrated when people call us a luxury brand. It's, you know, we make plus twos, you know, we make 21-ounce tweed. It's not luxury. It's well-made clothing. They must just be looking at the prices yeah, of certain items yeah, exactly. and thinking it's you know zara does it cheaper yeah, or whatever exactly. no but it's interesting you mentioned mulberry though mm. because they could have also been a brand that was a bit similar it was i mean it was. Took, took a few twisty turns yeah, it very much was when i was working for them i mean they you know they i mean they're, they're still a brilliant utterly brilliant bag manufacturer they're, they're so good at what they do with the leather goods um you know but they, they've sort of you know gone in different directions since you know, but they, they've you know they've got a a pretty long heritage now. I don't know when they started, but I know the original guys. 1979, all... I think. Okay. That's so. Just a few years after were interesting. They um, came to a certain level. I think the original owners sold them. Then they sent the production to China and decided that that wasn't working out, brought it back. They always have manufacturing. They've always had manufacturing in um, Somerset. So they've always been there, um, I think. And and brilliantly now, I think in the last sort of 10 years, they've un- they've sort of brought a lot more back and they're, you know, they're sort of re... Um, what's the word? Re-assub- you know, they're short. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, they, they're very good at what they do. So I think there's some... Um, you know, there's there's some really good bag makers out there in the UK. But, you know, the leather goods se- section, sector. Yeah, I, I noticed that the use of real leather is going down now in the face of vegan leather. That's a very cordings answer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we're in agreement there. Well, I mean, you know, vegan it, leather is basically plastic. It's 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 yeah. I I don't want to get too um, you know this. By saying something is vegan, but it's not helping the planet, it's you know it'll end up in landfill, and we'll still be in a hundred years' time 
just makes no sense to me. No. Mm. Do you think the Britishness is a big part of what you're doing? I think, yeah, definitely. I think we are, we, you know, we're a British, you know, we're sort of labelled as a heritage brand. But um, so I, I definitely think it's important. And I think it's important that we don't try to be anything other than that in a way. It sounds, you know, we, we, we're not, we don't look to, you know, the Italians are very good at what they do. You know, it's like the, there are certain there's certain DNA in different countries, and I think that we are part of that British British DNA, really. So you know, it, we wouldn't want to lose it. And I think you know, if people come into the store; they can feel it's very much a British brand. And so I was going to. Do you think that's part of the part of the um, attraction for uh, people from other countries? Yeah, definitely, absolutely. No, they they love you know the Americans, especially they they. You know, they they will buy from us because they know that we're the real deal, and that's fantastic. Is that part of the sort of East Coast uh, cosplaying the British? Uh... Oh, cosplaying! I mean, they they they, they, they so <laughs> okay, genuine. dressing up. <laughs> <laughs> it's there's a really good quote about that the you know, the Americans, you know, at one point were doing the British look better than we were because they they understood the they liked the style. They are like. To be well dressed, and I think we're we're ca- ca- you know getting back onto that now. But you know, there's a point when the English gentleman lost his, you know, he don't get scruffy. I'd say, you know, but um, yeah, I think it's it's who we are. It's interesting how these styles sort of move around the world because there's been a lot of talk about how the Japanese took the American ivy style yes, when yeah. it was going out of fashion there and sort of kept it alive in Japan and then exported it back. Yeah. And while well, the British gent went under uh, the American East Coast, I suppose mainly sort of kept it warm and they, <laughs> alive. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing with America because the, the East Coast, we, we sell – a lot of tailoring, but down in the southern states, we sell an awful lot of field clothing. So, you know, it's sort of you, you, you can see the difference in the orders going out, like the, the tweed jackets, you know, it'll be a New York address, and then a field, a field coat and the plus twos will be going to Texas. That I would not have guessed at all. What is a Texan doing with plus twos? Well, they're, they're, they're big field sports out there. Clearly, my uh, knowledge of Texas is very <laughs> lacking. <laughs> um, okay. Are, are there other odd, oddities in, in where you send things? No, I mean, you, I, I love it because I, I pretty much look at every order that goes through the um, website just because I find it fascinating. So you do – what I love is that the – you know, we sell an awful lot of the coats and some of the really kind of – um, the things that I'm really proud of in terms of the collection, like the Macintosh and things like that, they, they go to, the Europeans love that kind of thing. You know, quite often we'll be sending out, um, a Macintosh, Tosh to Japan. So the English guys will be buying the lambs, will the shirts, you know, they'll buy all those things as well. But if you're seeing a, an order going to Europe, quite often it'll be one of our iconic pieces going out there. Could that be because they want that special item yeah. whilst the the Brits will be wanting basically their everyday I think stuff. there's a lot of that. I think, you know, an English guy will be replacing his Lambswell Navy jumper because it's finally worn out after 20 years. Whereas, and, and also buying all the other things. But quite often I'll be seeing orders going out to Europe and I'll be just thinking, that's a lovely outfit right there. 
Now, I have noticed there are some items that you don't make in the UK, but are made by European specialist makers. Tell me about it. (laughs) Yes, we we buy from Schneiders as well. Because they're good at what they do. Because they're really good at what they do. Good Salzburger brand. The Nevis double-breasted alpaca coat. Yes. Clearly the Bentley of coats. It's spectacular. It is utterly spectacular. I mean, the lining is, is... is made by Stife, who make the teddy bears. <laughs> and it's just beyond beautiful. You know, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a utterly beautiful coat that, um, we you know we've only made a small number of them. And I remember when Justin made it, I was just thinking, wow, you know, that's A, that's quite a lot of money. And B, that's just, it's had so much thrown at it in terms of detailing and the cost of the cloth and everything, but it's pretty spectacular. Who buys a coat like that? Um, we have sold. We've set, we're selling them. You know, we don't. They don't go out every day, but um, they've gone to Europe. They've definitely gone to Europe. We've been selling them in the store. I mean, it's very covetable. I think. So, I can I can tell you, it's covetable. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know, Nick. Teddy, teddy bear lining. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, honestly, I put one on the other day. I was just like, well, they're beautiful. And Yorkshire tweed. By a brand I've not heard about before, Malaloos. Malaloos of Delph. Malaloos. You find these small makers of fabric here and there and... They've been around for decades. I mean, they've been centuries, Malaloos. Um, actually, one of the girls that I went to Huddersfield with is a designer. So, <laughs> yeah, no, they, they, there's lots of mills out there. I think a lot of the mills, you know, they don't necessarily shout about themselves so much. But Malaloos also do Albin Canton, which is our ladies' wear. Um, which I'm wearing, in fact. So, so yeah, we, um, yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of very, very good mills out there. Some of, some are better known than others. Interestingly. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Gomology, and it's easy. And uh, yeah, let's continue on. Another point I wanted to ask you about. Now, clearly, Cordings is a very, very British brand and has been a British brand for nearly 200 years. You have other brands that sort of like to sort of give the impression that they're British brands. But once you start looking a little bit, you'll see that they're not actually more than in that they might be registered in the UK, Mm. but make elsewhere from fabrics from elsewhere. What do you think about that? Um, do you know, I think the great thing is knowledge is power. You know, so the great thing about consumers these days with the internet, you, you can dig, you know, dig. You know, dig, but dig beneath the surface of a brand. If you're going to spend money on something, find a bit more, find out about what you're buying, I think. You know. It wouldn't really bug me as much if they were honest about it. Would, it. Yeah. But it's the way they're trying to sort of be covert about it. They're <laughs> <laughs> wearing their covert coat. No, I mean, it's, yeah, I think it's, I think men are very good, at very savvy at chasing down things. So just, you know, if you're buying something, research it. And if, if it's somebody you've not heard of, who sounds like they've got a big history, you know, just research it. Some of these brands are just so incredibly British. I mean, there's flags all over it and proudly British and blah, 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 made in Eastern Europe. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I think it's sort of, um, it's a frustration where you think 
selling the heritage but not actually supporting it and that's frustrating I have spoken to others who have a similar frustration where they feel that they're not being seen and they are yeah genuinely making it in Britain and but others are sort of overshadowing them but they're just lying about it well, yeah I mean that's I mean, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in, but you know that's a lot, a lot to do with marketing and you know all those things that people you know just avoid smoke and mirrors just because something's got a British flag on it all over the storefront doesn't mean it's being made in Britain and you know and you know we, we quite candidly say we don't make everything in Britain because we, we can't but um, avoid smoke and mirrors I think that's honesty is um, usually the best yeah. policy yeah, but, you know, I've had conversations with customers where they'll ring up and say, well, why aren't you making that in the UK? And, you know, we can have very honest conversations about those things. You know, it's not, it's not, um, you know, there's no ulterior motive to anything we're trying to, to say to people. I think it's, you know, I think luckily people are getting a bit more aware of where things are made. And there's been, you know, there's been some incidences in the last few years where, you sort of think we've got to be mindful of those things as consumers. I think there is mileage in being honest instead of trying to um, fob people off and then being caught with the trousers yeah, down. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I think there has been a lot of, uh, if not outright dishonesty, at least, uh, well, what do you call it, about British manufacturing and the state of how things are made. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of talk about making in Britain and then you hear about the sweatshops in Birmingham, and you're sort of, well, if this boohoo or whatever are using British sweatshops, is that better than they're using sweatshops somewhere else? It's not. It's no, just I mean, my opinion, it's worse. It shouldn't be happening here. You know, I've got, you know, I won't, but I do have very strong opinions on that. I think it's, you know, fast fashion chases poverty around the globe, and the fact that it found a home in the UK, I find personally very it gets me very cross very disappointed well just you know shouldn't yeah so many so many questions should be asked and you know uh, yeah the, the fact that some of these companies are still in business find i find fascinating for want of a better word yeah at the very least surprising yeah with the regulations that should yes, have stopped exa- them. exactly that that's i mean that's the whole thing for me you know the reason garments cost more to be made in the UK is that we've got health and safety legislation we've got minimum wages the fact that that was happening I just you know, it, it's not better it's worse I was I was talking to someone the other day because there's this Norwegian model who's made this book called Green Glam which is just another sustainable influencer type thing where don't buy so many clothes and don't throw stuff away and, and it's just and it's all everything's put over onto the consumer yeah because it's the consumer who's going to save the world. They're not saying it's the companies no. who are doing this, which is... I totally agree. I, the, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think the only problem is they're not going to stop if we don't stop buying from them. You know, it's as simple as that. You know, just I think that's what's got to happen. And how you get that groundswell to say to teenagers, stop buying £10 dresses made in the UK, it's like, I don't know. Uh, there's, this, uh, there's this Chinese place called Xi'an, and I was talking to a friend the other day, and he was, um, and I was saying, "Look, this Xi'an this is sort of the worst mm. place now. It's the new king of crap." And he was saying, "Well, his daughter, who's thirteen, she buys stuff from there because she can afford it." Yeah. So, whilst he thinks 
that we should oppose all this. It was sort of, well, that's what she can afford. Yeah, I d- yes, but quite that's kind of like... Quite a lot of that in the podcast that went out today. This <laughs> is whole thing of like, you're allowing your 13-year-old daughter to buy things that are being made by people who will never have that luxury. It's like, don't do it. It's, it frustrates me because it's like we're not all talking about the same thing. Mm. Uh, because you can sense that people have such, such firmly set agendas that you're not going to convince anyone. No. Everyone's just spouting their opinions, yeah. like in American politics or anything to yeah. do. Yeah, no, it's, it's exactly that, which is why I sort of, um, you know, I don't, we don't go on about that on our website or because, you know, we just don't. It just conf- confuses yeah, we, everything, yeah. really. It's almost like if people know us, they know that's what we stand for anyway, so. I think that's probably the wisest idea, not to get involved in it. Um, good on you for taking a stance on it, but I don't know. I think people just, at the moment now, sustainability is quite fashionable. Exactly. And a lot of people are wanting to sort of get into the sustainable lifestyle, slow fashion. Yeah. And two months ago, they were into pouring coffee through these things so you get an extra week in awful <laughs> Before that, they went to something else. Yeah, I mean, when you said about vegan leather, I just oh. just so stupid. It's just like stop it. Yeah, that's that's the thing. And next month they'll be into making their own pasta yeah. or whatever. So it has to become more than that. Yeah, I think it's a difficult thing, isn't it? It's, you know, the, the rot set in in the seventies. Really, that's the problem. Seventies. What happened? Well, then? was that within free love and no, I think drugs well, and? Because I did my um, I think I did my um, year out in Leicester in Listy Arns, and um, at that point, Marks and Spencer was a massive um buyer from all the factories around there. So there were like Cora and all these big factories in Leicester, all being supported by Marks and Spencer, Don Lewis. You know the big high street brands. Literally overnight, some of them moved that production to China. And they shut down. And it was almost like, because they could get it for better margins, you know, the, the same quality. It was like, and that sort of, in my opinion, when we we lost the the sort of backbone of our manufacturing business. And now now we've got some good ones, but they are, they are you know, they are not, they're not struggling, but it's not like it was. You know, we've, we've lost the, you know, we've lost the supporting industries as well. So yeah, will history show that? Their greed and outsourcing of production killed a lot of British manufacturing, and then it eventually killed them as well. Yeah, I think there's a, you know, because you dilute who you are. I think when you start doing things like that, and you know, I, 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 per- I do get frustrated because I've been to some factories and seen people doing things where it's generally jaw-droppingly impressive what they're doing, like hand broguing a pair of shoes. Can you imagine trying to do that? It's like mm. watching a woman doing it at breakneck speed and a beautiful pattern. I'm thinking, whoa, you know, or putting a pocket on a pair of pajamas, you know, just, just or even like I said about the hand linking of socks. You know, these are it's incredibly skilled tasks. And once that manufacturing goes, we we lose that skill. You know, from the UK, we just lose it. I'm just you know, it's so frustrating. So you know, if, if you know, if you hear if I hear any factories going down, I genuinely get upset by it. It's a shame, though, that they're not offering attractive jobs for the young of the day. Yeah, so that's a complex and, one, isn't it? I mean, would you rather be an influencer 
or would you work in a factory? Well, I'll try asking that to a 15-year-old, I think. It's not... Well, I mean, there's no content, but then again, one of them is a proper yeah, job, and the other I... one is a made-up. I, you know, I, th- I think we lived less stressful lives when we were making things. You know, everyone's looking at a computer screen all day these days. Can you imagine the um, enjoyment and the sense of, yeah, I don't know, I, you'd get a real sense of pride being able to do some of the things that I've seen being made, way beyond my skill set. I tried to hand a leather shoe. It end in tears and probably A&E. <laughs> <laughs> you get there in the hand. <laughs> <laughs> but but it is interesting. I did visit one shoe factory in Northamptonshire, and it was almost as if they'd set up a production line in the factory for display purposes. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the people making the shoes were brilliant. I mean, friendly, and they were clever. Yeah. They were doing their stuff, and it was re- all really good. But it struck me afterwards because I know they make a bunch of stuff in India as well. That this was almost like it was their excuse. Yes. Yeah. Well. This was look we make in Britain, but something in India. But I, I, you know, I think I would come to the defence of some of these companies because I think some some of them have held on by their fingernails. Some of them, so you know, but, but the more we're interested in where we're buying clothing from, the more they can bring back to the UK confidently. I'd say. I think that's very valid because uh, people have got used to paying almost nothing yeah. for what they buy, and if people aren't willing to pay. Four hundred pounds for a pair of shoes. You're not going to survive selling. No, exactly. Um, you know, we've got a minimum wage in this country, and you know, it goes back to that whole thing of you know, textiles were very valuable in in previous centuries, and we now see them as less valuable than a cup of coffee. You know, that's something's gone very badly wrong when somebody's actually physically making something, and you don't put any value on it. Well, I mean, once you've discovered that you can buy a pair of shoes for eight pounds in Primark. Yeah. Why would you pay more? Well. If you're only going to use them a couple of Saturdays or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like a couple of Grinches. It gets me down. Well, I think it, I think it's, to be honest, it's an, an age thing. I mean, once you get a bit older, you get a bit wiser, you get savvy to the way of the world. You see how things are, what's important, what's not important. Yeah, def- I definitely I mean, I think so. I think also for me, I was, you know, I did, I've been in the textile industry all my working life. And, you know, I think, you know, I feel a sense of sadness, sadness about so much of the loss of it. You know. But, the, you know, there are people making again, a lot of them. So it's, you know, I think it's hope, there are hopeful signs. That's why we need to support the, the ones that are doing Really stuff. do. That's, that's the thing, though. This is, a massively complex system, yeah. basically the world in a miniature. So there's no sort of, oh, but if we'd only just fix that, yeah. everything would snap into places. Yeah, I think basically. Yeah, it's this whole thing of we, we need to pay a fair price for the garments that we, buy, we purchase. Okay, Hilary, we've been talking for quite a while now, and I think we've come to about the end of uh, our topics. Is there anything you'd mention, like to mention in closing? Well, well, firstly, thank you for having me, Nick. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, but, you know, if, if any of your listeners wanted to come in and visit the store, um, we would love to see you in there and show you around and, you know, just, just to get a, get a taste of what we do. So, so, and also thank you for listening. I can confirm that the store is an absolute Aladdin's cave of menswear. The colours and textures alone are bound to keep you occupied for a Keep you out of mischief. At least. <laughs> Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Hilary. And uh, 
Bye bye for now. That's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>